Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Trevor Connor. Many times on this show, we've discussed sports psychology, and we've talked about actions athletes can use to affect their performance through improved mindset. But there's another side to this science, the neuroscience of the brain, which tries to understand our behaviors through the lens of biology, answering the question of what's the mechanism that creates our mindset and perceptions. Neuroscience has become critical to sports performance. Coaches and athletes used to believe that strength, fatigue, and performance were all confined to our muscles. But researchers like Dr. Timothy Noakes have challenged that thought and shown evidence that our brains are integral to concepts like performance and fatigue. Instead of focusing on conditions in the local muscle, like glucose availability or oxygen delivery, our brain can modify our pace and performance based on our pain perception, the length of the effort, the environmental conditions, and other factors. Discussing this fascinating topic with us today is neuroscientist Dr. Scott Frey, who, interestingly, is an avid listener of Fast Talk who reached out to us with this topic. An athlete himself, he has been fascinated by how neuroscience can be used to improve performance and is consulting with athletes directly through his company, Neurocognitive Consultants. Joining Dr. Frey are Rach McBride, a top-level triathlete who is very familiar with the importance of perception, as well as coach physiologist Adam St. Pierre, who talks about using uncertainty and deception as tools in training. So, get ready to change your perception, and let's make you fast. Endurance coaches know that their athletes are real people, with real strengths and limitations, complications and quirks. In the new module from the Craft of Coaching series, Joe Friel and five successful coaches explore how to become more versatile by learning how to understand and work with different personality types, understanding what makes an athlete tick, how to best motivate people, and how to help athletes achieve goals, whether those are winning the race or just finishing it. For coaches willing to become more versatile, adapting their coaching to meet the needs of today's athletes, the pool of potential clients is huge, and coaches open themselves up to a more rewarding coaching career. Become a more versatile and effective coach. Check out The Craft of Coaching at FastTalkLabs.com. So Dr. Fry, you're a quote-unquote long-time listener, first-time caller, perhaps for us. And I think it's really interesting for everybody to know that you reached out to me and said, hey, I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. This is the stuff I do in my professional life. Would you be interested in talking about it? So tell us, how did you arrive at the table next to us? Yeah, well, I have a lot of regard for the way that you're trying to distill science into actionable items to help people get faster, which is something that I've been on a mission to figure out how and do myself in my own uh, world of endurance athletics for a few decades. And I did reach out to you because I thought that one of the areas that is exciting really is an area that I've spent a lot of time working in as a neuroscience professor currently at the University of Missouri, the human brain, trying to figure out the relationship between human brain function and human performance optimization. We're talking about the neurology of the brain. Is that correct terminology here? But how much different signals, different perceptions can really influence our ability to perform and how hard we can go. And I actually find it really fascinating how much we can fool the brain and actually 
either not go nearly as hard as we think we can go or actually go significantly harder than we think we're capable of just by fooling the brain a little bit. I share your excitement about this topic and I've you know spent a lot of my life studying the brain and studying how it creates our perceptions of the world around us and uh, I'd have to say that I agree with you perception our perception of what's happening is in essence dictating our reality and so at any given moment in time you might take me to an exercise science lab and tell me I'm putting out x amount of watts but it's really my perception of the effort that I'm making, the feedback that I'm getting through my sensory system, and whatever else is going on, and I guess we'll get into that a little bit, that is going to determine how I experience that ride I'm doing for you in the lab, for example. So I just brought up fooling the brain, but I think before we need to go there and all the, the kind of the neat ways you can fool the brain, let's talk about how the brain works under normal circumstances. What a big topic, right? Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> Could you give us a one-minute yeah, summary of how the brain works, please? <laughs> or the universe, right? But I can try and tell you some things because I've been put in this position many times over the years. And if you ask me for one sentence on what your brain does, I would say that it's a prediction machine. It's taking in information constantly from your sensory systems, right? You've got vision, hearing, touch, smell, taste, and you've got all these body systems, somatosensory, body senses, touch being one of them, but you have feedback from your internal organs, you've got a pain system. It's a very elaborate network of sensory systems that we've evolved to give us constant information about our internal world and the world around us. And our brain puts that information together to try not only to control our behavior in the moment, but also anticipate the future. And that's the prediction part. A lot of what your brain is charged with doing is happening outside your awareness, and it's taking in all that information to try to come up with reasonable predictions about what is about to happen. Think about it this way. If you were just trying to control your behavior only on sensory feedback, it would be, you would be incredibly inefficient. That's kind of like what a thermostat does, right? You turn a thermostat up to 70 degrees, the furnace turns on, it goes to 70 degrees, and it turns off. It's based on feedback. And those kind of systems have no method for predicting the future. It can't say, well, in a little while, I'm going to need to turn back on, so why don't I edge up the temperature right now? That would be very efficient, but that's not how a feedback-based system works. Our brain needs to anticipate the future because the sensory feedback that you're getting in the moment is delayed, right? All that information coming in from vision and hearing and touch happened a little while ago by the time it's registered in your nervous system. And in order for us to really control, say, movement in the world efficiently, we have to not only have that feedback, but also use it to make predictions about what's likely to happen. And I think that that's a really important thing when it comes to optimizing performance. And we'll hopefully get into that a little Rachel McBride is a top-level triathlete, but that doesn't mean they haven't had their anticipation of an event lead them to bad places. We just talked about the importance of perception, and here Rach describes how a simple change in perception had a big impact. I think that what I have realized, especially in the past couple of years, is that what I am doing in my training is more about training myself to be able to tolerate pain and 
for myself, I have been working with a performance coach who has really helped me understand like where my brain goes in those terrible times. I have really recognized just being aware that at some point in every single race, my brain is going to tell me, just stop. You don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is terrible. Why are we doing this? And to recognize, okay, this is normal. This is, you know, part of racing. You anticipated this and let's just refocus and continue on because you really do actually want to be here. And I had this actually really profound experience at the beginning of my career where when I first started triathlon and I would go up to the start line and I would just want to go home and turn around and go back to bed. And I was like, I don't want to be here. This is terrible. I don't know why I do this. And I thought something was wrong with me. I thought that there was some reason this was happening. I shouldn't be here because I was having these thoughts. And what I realized a couple of years later was that this was just my body's nervous system getting excited, getting amped up. It's that fight or flight. It was telling me to to run away. (laughs) And as soon as I recognized that, and as soon as I was aware of that, it completely changed how I approached that start line and how I approached those thoughts and feelings in my head. For when I finally understood like, okay, these feelings are normal. I expect these feelings. Then it wasn't a stressful situation. It was not anxiety. It was like, okay, this is my body's way of saying I'm excited about this. And that was super profound. I was actually giving a talk in front of a conference of surgeons. And one of the, I told this story and one of the surgeons piped up and said, every time I'm about to step into the operating theater, I feel the same way. And it was this like light bulb moment for her of like, oh, wow, okay, now I understand this. Now I don't feel like an imposter going in. I understand how my body is reacting and that it is that physiological response. And I think that mind-body connection is incredibly powerful to be able to understand that. So I got to get a little philosophical here, and this is probably the basis of a lot of philosophy, the way our brain works. But in short, basically what I'm hearing from you is the brain can't, perceive the world unbiased as it is at the moment. That we are taking in these signals, but as you said, there's a bit of a delay. The brain is picking what to process, what to not process, and then it's always trying to interpret it and predict. So we are always looking at the world from a a certain perception. It's not just an unbiased, here is the world around me. Yeah, no, it is It is very hard to talk about the brain and talk about human behavior in the context of neuroscience without getting into philosophy a little bit, right? right? Because what, in essence, we're talking about here is our own construction of reality based on perceptions, which sounds pretty far out, admittedly. But think about it this way. The brain being a physical organ, it takes time for those nerve impulses, those action potentials to fire off, right? So... By the time you experience having seen something, it's already happened. And when you're talking about being in an environment like we are as cyclists, where things are happening very rapidly, that kind of delay could be significant. I'll give you an example. We did an experiment some years ago back when I was at Dartmouth College, and we had people wear some virtual reality goggles. 
And we just had them doing simple movements. I think they were picking like um, little pegs out of a pegboard or something that required dexterity. Unbeknownst to them, we could introduce a little temporal delay in the visual information they were getting. They weren't seeing the world live. They were seeing it through a little camera projected onto this little screen. But we can insert a little delay. And we were interested in how much delay we could insert until they became consciously aware of it but also when they started to show evidence of having trouble controlling their movements. The upshot of this is we could insert uh, upwards of a tenth of a second of delay before people were even aware of it. And their movements were being affected at very short amounts of delay, right? We were messing with that whole perceptual feedback system and forcing people to rely more on prediction, which they do quite well up to a point, but then things start to break down. But that's kind of analogous to the situation we're living in all the time, right? We're always a little bit behind what's going on around us. We don't see the world that way. We don't perceive the world that way. But it does have a lot to do with why we've evolved these big brains to do prediction. Dr. Fry, this has been a really interesting high-level beginning to the conversation. And you brought up a term earlier, neuroscience, which is ultimately the point of today's episode. But oftentimes when I think of exercise performance and the brain, I go to the sports psychology side of things. And so I would love to know from you, for all of our listeners, where do those two paths diverge and, and what falls in the realm of neuroscience and what is sports psychology? Yeah, what a great question. So my original training was in experimental psychology. We have all, all these different flavors of psychology, experimental psychology, sports psychology, clinical psychology, developmental, all these different areas. And I guess the hope is that we would come up with some kind of grand theory of the brain and mind that would unite them all. And we're still kind of waiting on that. Sports psychology, as I see the field, has contributed enormously and particularly in the realm of actionable items that athletes can implement, that coaches can implement to improve performance. Neuroscience looks at things a bit differently. We look at human behavior and human performance through the lens of biology. So we're really looking at, you know, we've got this three pound, roughly three pound organ between our ears that is ultimately responsible for all of the perceptions we were talking about a moment ago, Trevor, all of our behavioral control of our, of our movement and performance is being ultimately regulated by that organ. And so neuroscience looks at the world from that perspective. And our real goal is to try to get a mechanistic understanding. We often talk about neuroscience as trying to reverse engineer the mind, right? We're trying to understand what the mechanisms are of the sorts of processes like those that we've been talking about, our perception and so forth, with the belief that once we understand the mechanisms, and this is general to most kinds of science, that we can start to come up with some principles that underlie how those mechanisms work, and that then we can use those principles to start to come up with some actionables, right? Because that's what we all want. I'm an athlete as well. I want to know how I can get faster, how I can get stronger, how I can maintain what I have efficiently, in, in my case, in the, in the least amount of time, unfortunately, in a busy life. So I would say that those are the big differences. In preparation for this, I was watching a workshop that actually Trevor and Ryan Kohler, our head coach, did previously, and that was with Alex Hutchinson on the topic of teleoanticipation. And the example that Alex gave, I think, really drives the point home for me. And it, it was essentially this. 
If you're on the start line of a race, the very first step you take is very different if it's a 5K or if it's a marathon. And so your brain is taking this information that it has, the distance of the event, and then your body is choosing actions that are appropriate thereafter. And and a follow-up example was if you're running a five-minute mile, you will perceive that very differently if you're one mile into a marathon or one mile into a one-mile race. Even though it's the exact same pace, your rating of perceived exertion, how you feel, the pain you're feeling are very different in those situations. And that really struck home for me. Oh, wow, that is the link that the brain has because there is no difference in your muscle. But you think, and we all immediately were like, yeah, you would feel differently about that. That's along the lines of what we're talking about specifically on the neuroscience side. Yeah, exactly. And I I love that example. It's really a great one. Having been in that situation literally many times, because I I come from a running background, actually, until I moved strictly to cycling is is my knees kind of didn't like it so much anymore over the years. But that encapsulates a lot of the things that I think we've been talking about at a pretty high level already in our conversation, right? The fact that you approach that first step or first hundred meters, or however you want to think of it differently in those two circumstances, has a lot to do with predictions about what you're anticipating next. And I think it's important to realize that when we talk about predictions, it's probably tempting to think about, oh, predicting the weather or something like that. And in a way, we do mean predictions or anticipation in that sense. But what I think is really important here is a lot of the machinery that is making predictions in the world that we're talking about now, in the world of the brain, it's outside your awareness. It's non-conscious, right? There are elements of which kind of are above the waterline of consciousness. If you want to think of an iceberg, we often use that analogy. The tip of the iceberg is conscious experience and awareness, but a whole lot of what's going on, the majority of what's going on in the brain is stuff that's happening outside our conscious awareness, but is influencing our behavior, is influencing that approach to the first step of the marathon, the 5K, or however you'd like to think about it. So I'm going to go on a real tangent here. So we've covered philosophy, we've covered neurobiology, (laughs) psychology. So I'm going to bring in uh, evolutionary science here. Great. Because you're, you're touching on something that I really love. I love looking at how we evolved and how that influences the way we are now. And I've said this a bunch of times on the show that we weren't designed for sport. We were designed for survival, which for a lot of our history involved hunting, gathering, running away from much larger creatures that wanted to eat us. And and that's how we're wired. And so a couple examples here, when you talk about that pacing, you have to think most of the time through human history, we didn't have a medical system. If you were running and you tripped and you broke your leg, you're basically dead. There's nothing you could do about that. So we evolved to be very careful about doing anything that was overly risky which would involve pacing ourselves. Yes, we could run faster, but why would you take that risk? Now, if you have a lion chasing you, yeah, you're going to take that risk. And all of a sudden your mind's going to open up and say, go a lot harder. And what I find really neat about sports, especially when we're talking about this this neurobiology side of sports, we're manipulating that. We're trying to tap into that. You're getting chased, convince the brain to open up and let you go a lot harder and take those risks that it normally wouldn't let you take. Yeah, I think that's great. Two thoughts. One is relating to what Rob was talking about a moment ago. What is the difference between the world I'm coming from, kind of neuroscience uh, world, experimental psychology world and sports psych? 
I think that a big revolution in my world, having been trained as an experimental psychologist, has been to embrace neuroscience more and more and realize that biology and its grounding in evolution has a lot to tell us and to try to frame things in that grand theory, right, that we have uh, and connect ourselves to the rest of, of science in that way has been really impactful and is continuing to impact things. I think traditionally sports psychology hasn't been as grounded in that. And so that's another important difference. But absolutely, I think uh, to the extent that we don't frame our behavior in the context of evolution, then we're really missing out on some important stuff. And your points are, are really well taken. When people talk about the advent of human culture, one of the things they'll point to is like fossilized remains of people who clearly survived having had something like a broken femur. That wouldn't have happened unless someone else cared for them, right? right? And so, yeah, I think this idea that we can take more risk when we have a safety net of sorts, right? You go out on a long ride in the mountains and you probably approach it really differently if you know that the little food store down the road is open than if it's not, or if you've got some arm warmers in case the temperature drops versus not, or you know the sun's about to go down versus not, right? We're doing those computations all the time about risk and we're taking into consideration all sorts of things like that bum knee that I have, for example. I won't step off the curb in the way I used to because of that. I won't be thinking about that consciously, but I'm adapting my behavior all the time to things like that. And this is going on a bit of a tangent, but continuing with that evolutionary approach, you brought up the whole societal side. I mean, we are social animals. Humans really can't survive on their own. And there's all sorts of great research that talks about how that's evolved our need for social acceptance, because that was literally survival. If your society didn't accept you, if your village didn't accept you and kicked you out, you're on your own, you're in trouble. And that's also, you know, I've, I've read a little bit that says that explains our need for competition because you need to prove your value to your society, to your, your village that you can serve your role. Yeah. And some villages are tougher than others, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> I think that a lot of people who are listening are probably familiar with the work of Dr. Tim Noakes and maybe to a lesser extent, but hopefully so, um, of Dr. Sam Markora as well, working on anticipatory regulation and the psychobiological model, respectively. I don't want this to be a conversation of which model is the way to go. And Dr. Fry, I, I hope that you're like, neither of those are good. I have my own and you come over the top. But both of those are essentially getting to a lot of this neuroscience side of things, essentially that the body is taking in information, whether it's a, a subconscious master controller or not is a big difference between those two theories, but that um, the subconscious sensory information plus some external cues like feedback or motivation ultimately get integrated together and, and they affect our performance. Where do you fit in the model? How does, how does all of that compute in your brain? Yeah, well, first off, I would say chapeau to Noakes and to Marcora for really being early adopters in a way of the importance of incorporating neuroscience into exercise and sports science. I think they both rightly point out that exercise science has told us a tremendous amount, but until it also considers this central controller role 
in some capacity, it will always be limited. Likewise, to the extent that we study the brain and ignore the body, we won't ever have a good theory of human behavior that is any way relevant to human performance. So we need each other. And those guys really were early in recognizing that. And a lot of the work, I guess, particularly from Dr. Noakes, but likewise from Dr. Mark Cora, has focused on understanding our limitations, right? How do we do those complex calculations that hold us back from going too deep? And I guess that relates to what we were talking about a minute ago, Trevor. I think that my perspective on things is just a bit broader, perhaps, in saying that most of the time we aren't in a situation where we're going completely to the mat or have to even be concerned with that, right? To take an example of watching the tour, there are days when those guys go all out and you can think about the breakaways and the mountain stage finishes where everything is laid out there. But most of the time, in most racing situations, you're not trying to get to your physical limit. You're trying to do what you need to to defeat your opponent given the context of everything that's going on. Situations where we go to the limit are things like in the lab when we do a max test, but that's pretty unusual. And so a lot of the time, I think the way my perspective differs on things is just thinking that this kind of prediction, taking into consideration all of these different variables, all of the information we're getting based on our past experiences, our memories, feedback about the internal state of our body, feedback through our sensory systems about the world, beliefs that we have about the fitness of our opponents, who's likely to jump from a group. All of these things are feeding into a very complex calculation that is then predicting what the future is likely to hold. And that prediction is then the basis for our decision-making. The traditional way that scientists would look at fatigue and performance in people was very peripherally based The assumption was, oh, there's too many waste products. You can't go on. Oh, your heart can't possibly beat any faster. You can't move any more oxygen. You're hitting these limits in your muscle. You run completely out of substrate and and therefore you can't turn the pedals over anymore. And what we're realizing and coming to find out is ultimately it is significantly more complex than that. It's not just a peripheral situation. And I hope that as we move forward in this episode, we'll outline exactly why it is complex and all of these different considerations. Yeah. And I just, I want to summarize this really quickly because a lot of our listeners might be new to this concept. And so I just want to give the the real basic to, to help with this conversation. So there was a belief, and I think a lot of this, particularly when we were high school and doing gym classes, kind of the way we thought is fatigue is in the muscles. So you're doing hard work, you start to feel that acid burn, legs are working really hard, and that tells you you're fatigued and you shut down. Your brain has nothing to do with that. It's really your muscle saying, I'm done, I can't do anymore. And that's that whole peripheral belief about fatigue. And what Dr. Noakes and, and what you know, several other researchers and what you're talking about is there might actually be this central, so we're talking central, we're talking in the brain, governor that determines fatigue. And it's taken in that information from the muscles. The muscles are saying, hey, this is starting to hurt. So it's, it's hearing those pain signals. But as you said, it's taken in a bunch of other factors. What my, what's my competition doing? How important is this event to me? There's a whole bunch of things 
that aren't just physiological information that's taking in. And then that leads your brain to say, here's how fatigued I am. Here's how much more I can do. Is that a pretty good summary of this peripheral versus central at the very basic level? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful summary. And I guess I would just, again, pull back and just say, a lot of what we associate with with the central governor theory of Tim Noakes and, and to some extent the the theory of, of San Marcoro as well is is based on this concept of limits, right? What's defining the limits? And that's what you're talking about right now. And I guess my perspective on this is just that these kind of calculations that we're talking about aren't just concerned with limits. They're concerned with every aspect of our behavior all the time, right? So these calculations are are going on during that first step off the line, as Rob pointed out, uh, as Alex, I guess Alex Hutchison was thinking about. And so I think talking about limits and what defines the limit peripheral versus central is an important first step. Now that we've made that first step, there's a lot more we can be thinking about in terms of what is the role of this central nervous system, the brain in particular, in regulating performance, even in non-max situations, which for those of us who do endurance athletes constitutes virtually all of the situations we find ourselves in. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're essentially saying is that our max or limit actually isn't as set as we think it is. And let me give an example of this for any of our listeners who are, again, new to this concept. I'm thinking of about 12 years ago, there was an athlete who I was coaching, and this is back when I was still doing the whole NRC circuit in the U.S., and I was getting him ready for his first NRC, and we were doing a lot of training together, and we'd go on these training rides. He'd want to race me, so we'd race up a hill or whatever, and he was feeling great because he was beating me up all these hills, and you know, it wasn't like I was not trying to, to race him a bit. So he's like, oh, I'm going to do great at this race. I'm like, just hold back, get ready for, for this your first NRC. And he's like, no, I'm killing you, so I'm going to do great. We went to the NRC, and unfortunately, you know, it was his first. He just wasn't ready for the pace, and he was getting popped, and I was up in the lead group. And after the race, he's just like, I don't get it. And basically what I just told him is, I have a very different limit in a race from what I have in training. Yeah, well, I think many of us have been in that circumstance, either as you or as your, as your athlete or both. And I guess what I would say about that is, from my perspective, that is those differences that you're talking about in your capacity in a race versus a training circumstance are really all being dictated by variations in your brain and your perception of those contexts and what you can get away with and and so forth. That's really not something we can understand just by studying traditional exercise physiology. Hi listeners, it's Dee Dee Barry and Julie Young. And we've been hard at work creating a new podcast featuring content for female endurance athletes and coaches of female endurance athletes. We're thrilled to announce an upcoming series from Fast Talk. Fast Talk Femme podcast. Listen for our first episodes coming this fall. Join the Fast Talk Labs newsletter for more information. Let's hear again from Rach McBride and how they've been able to change the perception in an Ironman in order to change what they see as their limits. So you're in an Ironman. You're five hours in. You're hurting. Yep and you have to keep pushing and you still have a whole marathon to run. 
what tactics do you use to keep yourself going? Well, you can't be in there thinking that, oh my goodness, I have a whole marathon to run. Your body's going to, your brain's going to shut down and be like, no, I can't do this. This is too hard. I had an experience where I was doing a half Ironman and during the pandemic running with one of my best friends and they had never run a half marathon before and were trying to keep up pace with me. And in their brain, they were like, we still have 16K to go at this pace. Like I can't hold this. And they fell off and dropped back. And that was a really interesting experience to go through with them because to understand just how powerful it is to just break things down into smaller chunks of being like, let's just run the next kilometer or the next mile. Let's just run to the next lamppost at this pace. And that's often what I will tell myself in a race is especially onto the marathon is like, okay, Rach, just give me another kilometer at this, like just to the next aid station. That's the the tactic that I used at Boulder 70.3 as well when things started to get tough on the run is let's just get to the next aid station. And you won that event. And so. I did. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I think that this is a great time for us to to really talk about some of the information that your brain is integrating when making the predictions, when making these calculations that are going to affect our performance. And I, what I'd love to do is start with the external information that we're taking in, perhaps from the world around us. And two of my favorite types of research out there are around placebos and around deception trials, uh, because they just highlight some really interesting differences. So I want to kick off with one placebo trial and, and then kind of maybe get some thoughts on the deeper you know, analysis of it from, from your point of view there, Dr. Fry. But uh, back in 2014, um, Broach did a, a placebo recovery research study that had essentially three recovery conditions after subjects did some fatiguing exercise. I think it was four 30-second all-out sprints. And then they did a recovery condition, and then they tested various factors, um, muscle temperature, interleukin-6, white blood cell count, and then also a maximum voluntary contraction, how well they functioned. But what was really interesting about this research were the three different recovery conditions that the subjects did. In one condition, they did a neutral temperature bath. I don't remember exactly what the temperature was, but a lukewarm tub, so to say. In the second condition, they did a cold water immersion with the thought that almost everyone knows that cold water is supposed to improve your recovery, but they didn't want that placebo effect alone to affect the results of the study. And so what they did in the third condition was the neutral temperature bath, but they very obviously squirted in a recovery lotion into the water with the subjects saying, oh, this is supposed to improve your recovery. And so the subjects had that embedded in their brain. They made it pretty obvious. Lo and behold, that recovery lotion was just Cetaphil, either face moisturizer or cleanser. It was just a neutral it had no, un unless a little bit of lanolin or something is going to improve your uh, recovery, maybe the glow of your skin, it should not have had any difference. But the subjects thought that it did. And we know that it thought that it did because of an effectiveness belief. When they asked the subjects, 
in which condition do you think you're going to do the best? Cold water was rated pretty high. This recovery lotion was rated pretty high. And the bath was rated pretty low, the neutral bath. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they saw in the results, that the neutral temperature bath with this recovery additive actually outperformed the other conditions in terms of the maximum voluntary contraction, even though there was no difference in any of their blood plasma parameters or anything else. The, the placebo effect of adding this lotion into the water, suddenly they performed so much better on all of the follow-up tests. And in the, the situation where they thought they were going to be the worst, the neutral bath, they happen to perform the worst, even though, again, there was physically no difference in the body. I love that study because it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about today, right? If you wanted to have a one-word summary of what we're talking about today, we're talking about perception, right? And our perception is what constructs our reality, and it's what our beliefs are based on. And so the fact that you could have this kind of difference in recovery based on a manipulation of your perception, which translates into a manipulation of your beliefs, is not surprising to me whatsoever. And here's why. One of the great things that's come out in the last 20 years or so of being able to have these wonderful imaging techniques to study the brain, which has been at the core of a lot of my work, things like functional MRI, fMRI I'm talking about, is that we've been able to actually start to capture the effects in the physiology of the brain of these kind of things that we label as placebo effects. When you have an experience like you're describing here, we can label it as placebo, and I think what many people will hear is, oh, a trick or deception, um, like a magician would do. But what I'd like people to replace that with is, no, Yes, the belief may be based on a, a bit of sleight of hand here. However, that sleight of hand is inducing real physiological changes in the state of people's brains. And those physiological changes have implications for our bodily physiology as well. So I think this is really uh, a very powerful thing. And it's starting to receive a lot more serious attention in medicine. Let me give you another example to kind of lend some credibility to the whole notion of placebos. We would never have a drug approved for medical use unless there were clinical trials which demonstrated that it is more effective than what? A placebo control, right? A placebo control is like the other conditions of this experiment where you're basically having a group that doesn't get the actual pharmacological agent, but they get something that looks exactly like it, administered in exactly the same way, and ideally by someone who doesn't know whether it's the real thing or not. And if you look at the difference in response to a lot of medications, actual drugs, versus the placebo group, sometimes you'd be shocked by how much of an improvement people get in the placebo group. I'll give you an example. Antidepressants, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, one of the most widely prescribed drugs in the United States. Something like 20 million prescriptions are written every six months in our country for those drugs. If you look at a, a meta-analysis of the clinical trial data and you look at people who were in those studies, and these would be huge studies, right, because we're summing over studies in a meta-analysis, many thousands of people, 
The placebo effect accounts for about 60% of the decrease in depressive symptoms that are produced by the drug. It's an enormous thing. If we could bottle the placebo effect and hand it out. Well, this is such an important point because I think culturally the, the word placebo has become associated with it's made up, it's in your head, it's not real. And that's not true. The placebo effect can actually be remarkably powerful. Well, it is in your head, but it also is real. Remarkably powerful. Everything right. is in our head. Yes. <laughs> and I've seen, a, I'm trying to remember where I saw this study, but a study comparing the placebo effect to painkillers and showing not quite as effective as painkillers, but amazingly pretty effective. Very effective. And one thing I would say is this all, to me, relates really interestingly to something that Trevor mentioned earlier, which is evolution. The placebo effect, the fact that we can change our physiology in ways that benefit performance, recovery, and so forth, based on our belief, based on our perceptions, has real evolutionary significance. It's yeah. like self-medicating in a way, right? Without any external agent. You can actually manipulate we have in our bodies a natural opioid system. This relates to the comment you made a minute ago. And we can modulate the activity in that opioid system, that pain-controlling, modulating, analgesic system that is within all of us, and that is the basis for a lot of the placebo effects. Let's move on to a study that I think is super interesting because it involves cycling and, and lying to cycling. And I'll use the word lie instead of de deception because it hits home a little harder. But Stone and his group did two studies. One was an original, one was a follow-up in 2012 and 2017. And in these, they had cyclists do a, a time trial. And then uh, that was a baseline condition. And then they did a repeat of that time trial and they were shown an avatar that they were told was their previous performance and that they should beat their previous performance. Well, there was actually two conditions there. In one of those, the avatar was an accurate representation of what they had did. And in the other one, the avatar was deceptively faster. It was actually 2% faster than what they had done. In both of those studies, the riders were able to exceed their baseline performance. So in the actual accurate condition, they were able to go faster and beat their avatar like instructed. But in the 2% faster, they were still able to beat a faster avatar. So they were able to pull out more of this performance inside of them that they didn't necessarily know they had, that they weren't able to do when they just had the accurate avatar. Now, what's interesting is in, in that five years later in the 2017 study, they repeated it with the 2% faster avatar, but they also did a 5% faster condition. And interestingly, the riders were not able to improve their performance in the 5% faster condition. That was a little bit too much, a little bit too deep. They still did better than baseline, but they did no better than their 2% condition. And this really highlights some of that performance reserve that we have within our body. Yeah, those are really interesting studies because I think those are such terrific examples of what we're, what we're talking about here. And I guess that the last point you made is really worth bearing out. What we're not trying to say here to people is, well, perception is everything and you can think your way to a faster time and, and a 5% gain or whatever. Of course, there are real limits physiologically, but there is a little margin, right? 
And uh, most of us would, would do a whole lot to have a 1% or a 2% gain. And the idea that you might be able to get that out of yourself through some kind of manipulation like what you're describing is pretty exciting for us, for most of us who will work really hard to get that kind of boost in performance. And we'll try all manner of different interval sessions, different recovery practices. We'll spend lots of money on wheels and, and uh, titanium bolts and all those great things. And this might be offering some real actionable ways to start to train ourselves to get that. So if you can deceive people in ways that influence their performance about something as fundamental as the things we're talking about, that's pretty exciting stuff. Before we talk about ways you can use your neurobiology to improve your performance, let's hear from Adam St. Pierre, an experienced coach and physiologist, about the tactics he's used to improve his athletes' training. I mean, as much as I would like athletes to be you know, purely physiological machines where you do, do certain workouts and you get certain results, um, that's, that's obviously not the case in reality. So one thing that's actually a focus for our Montana State Nordic team this year is kind of improving that, that mind-body connection. Like last year, we had a lot of, a lot of issues with, with sort of anxiety related to workouts where, you know, if, if the men's team started a workout together and you just feel bad and can't keep up, then the rest of your workout is shot because you just go into a state of anxiety where you are not, not willing to push or not able to push because you're, you're kind of down on yourself. So we're working on, you know, focusing more on the sensations and doing the appropriate that's uh, the workout that's appropriate for the individual instead of necessarily having to to stick with the the team or you know be the fastest on on any particular workout. I love the Twitter arguments that used to erupt between some of the you know the the Ross Tucker and the the Sam Marcora. I always thought that they were sort of arguing for the same thing, but with different semantics. and And no one is is denying that both the mind and body are are important in athletic performance, but it's like, one side is arguing that it's 51% mind and 49% body. And the other side is arguing that it's 51% body and 49% mind. But some of the anticipatory stuff is really interesting. We'll be experimenting with some workouts that don't necessarily have a set endpoint, which I think is different. You know, a lot of workouts end up being, you know, four by 10 minutes or, or six by 10 minutes. And then, you know, going to workouts that are more distance-based instead of time-based. So, you know, six by 2K or, or four by one mile or wh whatever the, the distances be. But then there's also an opportunity to have, when you have a group training together, at least to have some uncertainty within a workout. And so one thing that we experimented with last year and had some good success was having the workout is to ski as a pack. I and mean, each athlete in that pack has two attacks that they are asked to, to launch on the pack. You know, and it might be, you know, one athlete is supposed to do a 30 second and a, and a three minute and another athlete is supposed to do a one minute. And you sort of leave it up to the athletes as to, to when they're going to attack and how they're going to you know, stage that attack. And it, it's good to practice those skills for mass start racing, but it also sort of keeps the athletes more engaged throughout the workout because you're constantly, you know, on edge watching for that attack and preparing to launch your own perhaps. So I think like workouts like that, that introduce a layer of uncertainty you know, force athletes to to focus more on, you know, on their body and on their readiness in the moment, and sort of anticipate, you know, what what it's going to feel like and what the effects should be. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Adam, do you ever alter or withhold feedback or provide deceptive feedback to athletes, maybe that they're performing better than they actually are, or vice versa, to affect their performance? I haven't done the uh, the, the false negative feedback 
right? Like g- give them splits that are, are actually slower. I think generally that would sort of demoralize athletes. But I've definitely used, you know, little, little white lies out there. You know, if, if an athlete's kind of struggling in a workout, give them some positive feedback that may not be completely true uh, to try to turn around their their headspace for the rest of the workout. You know, whether that's something as, as simple as you know, giving them uh, some positive technique feedback or, or maybe saying like, hey, that was, that was stronger than your last one. Keep it up. So yes, I've used some, some of that feedback. I've also done some where, you know, you, you like add a rep or two at the end. You know, athletes think they're done after, you know, six by, six by 1K and then you inform them that it's actually seven or, or actually eight. But with techniques like that, you can only use them so often or then the athletes, you know, anticipate and then they start, you know, maybe saving a little more than they otherwise would, anticipating that you're going to throw, throw something tricky in there for them. Adam, I think it's interesting your workout about having people attack. I could see assigning people to be the attackers and giving them a specific time or whatever, and then other people have to follow and changing it up for different workouts. It's it's actually a really interesting way to to do a workout. Yeah, I mean, one of the benefits of having you know, I, I get to see my you know my eight men and my eight women you know every day and have them all training together, as opposed to you know the remote based athletes I coach. You know, workout like that wouldn't be feasible. But yeah, it's been really fun. And the last couple of years, we've actually done some sort of team time trial start ski races, just as a different format to, to mix it up for the athletes. Um, we actually started doing workouts, you know, essentially paceline practice on skis. And I think it, it helped us a lot. And then these other group-based workouts sort of grew out of that because those were such popular workouts. The guys just really liked doing them. Um, and then we've made other iterations. Listeners, it's here, our guide to polarized training featuring Dr. Steven Seiler. Training for endurance sports can be hard. It's way too easy to do too much for too long and pay the price. Our frequent contributor, Dr. Steven Seiler, is widely considered to be the modern pioneer of polarized training. We are excited to offer you the largest and most comprehensive body of work on this topic. All this content is free through September 29th. See it now at fasttalklabs.com. So that leads me to the question I really want to ask both of you. So you've now talked about the placebo effect. You've talked about deception. One other I'll quickly mention is there's a couple other good studies that look at the impact of competition and show that when you feel you're in a competitive state, you tend to open up a little more and you can perform a a little better as well. So how do you take these concepts of the placebo and deception and use this to your advantage to perform better? Yeah, Trevor, I think that this becomes the actionable information for coaches. And to start with where you finished, the the motivational side of things, the competition side of things, group workouts can oftentimes bring a lot more effort out of athletes than individual workouts. And this is one of the, the powerful things about training together with a team is there's that extra 10% maybe that you're able to go on that climb or in that interval, whatever it may be. And that will have real physiological adaptation changes down the line in that cascading stream because you are pushing yourself closer to that limit. I put a lot of this thinking into practice almost in the opposite manner, not through deception, but through purposely avoiding information especially when I'm working with, as everyone knows, the one person that I coach is my wife. And she, quote unquote, does not do well in the heat. 
And so we don't talk about the heat. We don't bring it up because if the athlete says to themselves, oh, it is so hot today, I'm not going to perform well. Guess what? They're not going to perform well. She has actually changed her temperature into Celsius and she doesn't really know Celsius. And in my mind, I always convert it and I start to convert it out loud. And she gets mad at me as I don't want to know. And so the avoiding sometimes of this external information, especially if it's going to have a deleterious effect on your performance, that can be a, a way to manipulate and improve performance as well. But Scott, how do, how do you put this into action? Well, you bring up so many interesting things. We in the world of cycling have so much technology now. I stepped out of the world of cycling and was focused on running for many years and kind of was still riding, but didn't really adopt all of the new uh, gizmos and gadgets. I even tossed out my little ancient cyclometer, my cat eye with the little uh, thing on the wheel that went around. But now that I've, I've kind of focused on cycling, I went out and got myself this wonderful Wahoo and it tells me how fast I'm going. It tells me my heart rate. I couldn't resist the urge and went out and got myself a power meter. I can see all of this information now that before I could make guesses about, I could get pretty close to telling you where my heart rate's at from having run with a monitor a lot. But this real-time feedback that we have is a real inundation with information. And one of the things that uh, we were talking about a little bit before the, the podcast is there probably are costs for that, right? There's a lot of cognitive load. You're looking at that head unit all the time that is a lot to process and it can work to your advantage, but it could also be working to your disadvantage. That is tying up all of those neurological resources in a way that they could be uh, free to do some of the other jobs that might benefit us more performance-wise. So, I mean, my take on this, this is going to sound like I'm joking, but I'm only half joking. As a coach, it almost sounds like you should just be lying like crazy to your athletes, which... No, you shouldn't lie to your athletes, but the, I, I do know many cases where coaches have carefully used placebo effects or, or deception. So example is a coach rubbing a hand lotion on their athlete's legs and saying, hey, this is going to take the pain away and convince them it's going to make them feel better. Another great example I know of is, is a few cases in the Tour de France where they're in the time trial and it's a critical time trial. And the manager in the car is intentionally giving wrong time splits to their athlete, knowing what's going to motivate them. Yeah, I think that this is also the manipulation of workouts. And a, a thing that coaches will do with their athletes is maybe four by one mile. And the athlete goes all out knowing that they're going to complete those and they're going to be dead on the end of the fourth one mile interval. And sometimes the coach comes back and he says, let's do another one. Yep. And the athlete is able to push themselves and, and get that deeper sort of uh, effect. Whereas if they were going to do five by one mile, maybe they would have done each mile a little bit slower. So I think Trevor and Rob, you both bring out really great points because you're, you have so much experience coaching athletes, which is something that I don't have. Coaches know a lot of this stuff, right? I always love it when I hear Joe Friel talk about the science because he has this perspective that the coaches got there first on a lot of these things. And, and I think that's true here in some way. I think what we're doing now is starting to, in some ways, backfill the science uh, to support some of the things that coaches have been doing, like yelling out slightly wrong splits to their athletes doing track workouts and running and things like this. 
With respect to the issue of deception, that's what's really prevented the medical community for decades from actively prescribing placebos, right? There are ethical issues about that that come up in the world of medicine. Probably not as as much a concern in coaching, but how many times can you play that game? If I know that my alarm clock is actually set 10 minutes ahead, it might work for a little while, but then pretty quickly I cotton on to that and I start saying, well, you know, I've got an extra 10 minutes I can snooze. So here's something really interesting that is just getting started that I think will be interesting to your listeners. We have thought for a long time that the only way placebos could have a a significant effect on behavior was if the people getting the placebos didn't realize they were getting the placebos. We're starting to have to reconsider that. There have been a number of published studies, first in in the world of medicine, with what are called open-label placebos, where you say to the person, I'm going to give you a placebo. We've got science that shows that placebos actually change your physiology, and we'd like to give this a try. And these are the things that might come about by way of this placebo. This is making its way into the exercise world. Uh, There was a study by first author was Saunders. This was back in 2019. And the name of the study was, I put in my head that the supplement would help me. Open label placebo improves exercise performance in female cyclists. I think we're going to see more of this. And this may lead to ways of actually applying some of this stuff if we could get placebo effects through educating people about the fact that those effects are arising by virtue of changes in your physiology and get buy-in on that. Another way, you know, just thinking about, we've, we've come up with all these great ways to give ourselves feedback as cyclists about our speed, our power, and all of this myriad of other information. Well, one could imagine that you could write a simple little algorithm that could tinker not all the time, but some of the time, and unpredictably so, with the output of your power meter. And we know from placebo effects that have been done in labs that preconditioning is a phenomenon that happens. So there was a study by Benedetti done back in 2007 where they looked at opioid-mediated placebo responses and pain endurance and physical performance. And of course, giving people opioids in the context of sport is highly illegal and doping. What they did is they preconditioned individuals. So they gave them opioids to take the edge off the pain that the athletes were experiencing. And then after that administered the placebo. But what you're doing is you're setting up expectancies at both the conscious level, but also the unconscious physiological level. I'm not suggesting we should be giving athletes preconditioning loads of of any kind of medications, but what I am suggesting is the basic mechanism that they were modulating in this way might be open to other sorts of legal and safe sorts of manipulations. And that there, there are a lot of interesting possibilities here Unfortunately, I spend a lot of time riding indoors and on Zwift against avatars, right? Avatars are very manipulable in ways that real people aren't. And the feedback, uh, you could imagine that, you know, there could be subtle variations in your avatar that you didn't expect or know or in someone else's avatar. And given what we were talking about a moment ago, Rob, those might have some pretty profound effects on behavior. 
Well, I'm convinced that by everybody that beats me in Zwift races, they're all virtual doping and uh, they're they're cranking their avatars up a lot a lot harder than my avatar can go. So yeah, they really uh, weigh like yeah. 85 kilos, but they <laughs> report their weight at 45 kilos. A lot of skinny people on Zwift. I, I kid, I kid. Let me ask one last question. We talked about ways that coaches can use deception and, and you just brought more examples of, of placebo effects and deception. It's much harder to deceive yourself. Is there a way for an athlete to take advantage of it? I'll, I'll throw one out there. This is a trick I use with myself all the time that works is when I'm going out and doing intervals and they're really hurting. So let's say I'm going to go do four repeats of a hill and they're hurting. I, I will just tell myself, okay, just get through three and we're fine and we can go home. Even though I'm sort of aware I'm still going to do the fourth. Just telling myself I can quit after three allows me to to keep going and then i finish that third and go well there's just one left let's go do it so that's one way i've been able to use deception are there other ways that athletes can take advantage of that that's interesting i have a little uh, tool that i use to get myself out the door which is that uh, i if i feel particularly horrible uh, i'll go out for 20 minutes and then i'll turn around and you know i've been doing this endurance gig for like the last 40 years and I can probably count on one time the number of times the 20 minutes expired and I went back home. It's not to say it hasn't happened, but most of the time you get out there by giving yourself that out, if you want to think of that as is deception, maybe it is. But rarely have I had to employ it. Yeah, Trevor, I think that this goes back to what I mentioned before. For me, it's it's not a deception, quote unquote, but a manipulation of that external information that... I can recognize, just like I can recognize if I have Oreo cookies in the house, I'm going to eat all of them. I can recognize if I think I'm going to take in some information that is going to negatively affect my performance, and I can purposefully not take that information in so that it doesn't have that deleterious effect. If my heart rate seems a little high, maybe I'll change my screen so that it's not on my screen. If my power is a little bit off, maybe I'll ignore power and I'll just convince myself, hey, you know what? Your power meter is probably just reading a little low today. Keep going hard. It doesn't matter what the number says. And so it's almost the removal of the information as opposed to actively lying to myself. But I will say, definitely pulled that lie to myself about how many intervals I'm going to do and then just pull the bait and switch at the end. Uh, For some reason, I can do that too. Maybe that's common that people are able to do that. Told my athletes to do that. It, it, It can help. It breaks it down into something smaller and more manageable. And then as it's like what you were saying before, where the the coach then says, no, do one more. You can kind of do that with yourself. So I think that what you just said, Trevor, jogged something for me, the smaller and more manageable side of things. And, And Dr. Fry, let me know if you think that this fits into the neuroscience side of things, because maybe it doesn't. If you look at cyclocross racing, which is my preferred method of racing, a lap of cyclocross is very hard. And you have to do multiple laps of that. And when you evaluate the entire event, you get this very large challenge and threat perception. How can I possibly go hard for the next 50 minutes? There's no place to rest. I can't, you know. And so riders will maybe start out slower than they otherwise would or their pacing strategy will be different. But with the athletes that I work with and and how I look at it myself is I really try to have people break the course down. 
Okay, this is a climbing section on the course. You are going to be hurting. By the time you get to the top of this, it's gonna, your legs are gonna burn, but there's a, a technical recovery or a tourney section after that. So you're gonna get, and it changes that threat and that challenge perception so that they are able to really push themselves here, know they're gonna pull back there. And ultimately, I think that their workload, their output is higher because of it. Yeah, I have no doubt about about that. And uh, if we had more time, we could probably get into studies about sort of the overlap between motivation and these kind of uh, placebo-like effects that we're talking about. But there are wonderful studies where you know people have gone into a lab to do an experiment with a putting a golf ball into a hole. And if the experimenter hands the ball to somebody and says, this is the lucky ball, right? Everyone who's used this ball has been doing great. There are other examples where people were allowed to bring in a good luck charm. And, uh, you know, we've all heard the stories of the baseball players that have the lucky socks and so on and so forth. But I can tell you this, and, you know, here I'm a scientist. I'm supposed to see the world really through uh, clear lenses objectively. But boy, do I ride fast after I get, say, a new pair of shoes. That day, or even a new pair of cleats on my old shoes, it's amazing, right? Boy, are those group glides fast when you go out after an exciting episode of the Tour de France. So I think maybe even deception is uh, too broad of an envelope for some of the things that we could be doing pragmatically, crossing over into motivation. Just little things, right? Sometimes make huge differences in how an athlete performs. So actually what we're talking about right now is um, another important bit of information that we take in that affects our pacing, which is how much time we, we believe is left. And that's something that you can play with a little bit. So the classic example here, it's been a few of these studies. I'm trying to remember the, you'll probably know the one I'm talking about, where they had athletes ride on a trainer until they literally couldn't turn the cranks over one more time. Like I said, you know, the researchers said, you know, keep going, keep going. Can you keep pedaling? Do you still have anything left? And when the athlete said, no, I can't go any further, then the researchers would yell at them, do a sprint. And they could all do a sprint. But the idea here is before when it's, you know, go until you can't pedal anymore, there's no defined end to the exercise. So they just go, well, I can't just keep going forever. So I'm at my limit. When they're told to do a sprint, a sprint's 10 seconds, maybe 20 seconds. It has a defined length, so suddenly they could find that energy. And that's been showing that the, the shorter you believe the, the length is until you can quit, the harder you can go. So that's you know, I use that trick in races all the time. When I do a time trial, if I'm doing a 40K, I don't start and go, well, I've got 39.5K to go. That's hard. You have markers. You just, let's get to the, the, you know, just focus on the next couple kilometers, focus on getting to the next turn, getting to the next hill. And that defines the length and allows you to go a little harder. So you can kind of deceive yourself that way. Yeah. Holding on by your fingertips to the back of a group, right? And realizing they can't possibly hold this much longer because that hanging on for another five seconds could be the difference between mm -hmm. staying in the group or being spit out the back and your day's done. So any little games that you can come up with are going to be potentially pay huge dividends in this way. And breaking things down uh, is one, one approach that really uh, comes out of sports psychology to give sports psychology some cred here, right? What we're doing here is kind of looking under the hood a lot, but the sports psychology has contributed many really valuable actionables of this, this variety. 
Well, guys, I think that this has been a, a really interesting hour. There is so much more for us to talk about. And, and I really do hope that we have a follow episode that dives into maybe some of the internal factors more uh, that we have alluded to in this episode. But and we didn't even touch on perception of pain. We have which not. I think is another really interesting subject. Yeah. Or perception of time. Yep. Okay. Awesome. So I, I think we have some plans for another episode, but let's go ahead and wrap this one up with our take homes. So, Dr. Fry, you, you listened to the podcast. I'm sure you heard takeaways. Now's your chance to sum up what should listeners, what are the most important elements of today? Yeah, great. I'll keep it very brief because I know I have one minute. What I would say is that our perceptions are really not necessarily aligned with objective reality. And that is true all the time. We're constructing our perceptions of the world and the people around us and how we're feeling inside and so forth. And knowing that is absolutely key to getting the best kind of performances out of yourself. It would be interesting to think about some of the ways in which that fact could be put into uh, actionable world. And I guess I would just finish by hoping that we have more time to talk about that in a later episode. The best training plan is the one that you believe in and can stick with. It's hugely accurate, important advice right there. For me, you know, the beginning of this started with this central versus peripheral, the old way of looking at it, the new way of looking at it. I, I don't know that it necessarily matters for the athlete at the end of the day. It, maybe I shouldn't say I don't know that it matters. What does matter, though, is it, it is the combination thereof of the two of those things because those come together and they integrate into performance. And so I want listeners to always remember that when we're isolating variables in research, that might not tell the entire story. And for people to take away the fact that physiologically, if we're only talking about physiological concepts, that might not tell the whole story either. And that the brain is, is a part of the integration here, whether it's conscious or subconscious, a lot of this is happening outside of our realization. The whole organism is what's determining performance, not necessarily just the quadriceps or just the mind. So I think I'll go back to something near and dear to my heart, which is that whole evolutionary biology side, which is when you look at our neurobiology, we have a very finely tuned system that was designed for survival in a world that we don't live in anymore. And when you get into sport, it wasn't fine-tuned for sport, which gives us this great opportunity of stop thinking that our performance is based purely on our fitness. It's going to come down to just how strong our legs are and realize there's this whole opportunity to manipulate our perception of effort to get more, or if you do it wrong, to get less out of your legs. True words. All right, guys, anything else to follow up with? Thanks so much. Pleasure having you on the show. A lot of fun. Yeah, appreciate yeah. having you here. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Scott Frey, Rach McBride, Adam St. Pierre, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.